Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Remember when you were a kid, you could turn a stick into a gun, a sword, a magic wand, a sonic screwdriver. Okay, that last one may only be me. You could run around the yard with your arms out because you were an airplane. You could stack up couch cushions as your princess castle. You could create entire worlds of Legos and matchbox cars or Barbies and dollhouses. Well, in order to fly or be a master swordsman, a princess, or bring to life the dolls and Lego people, you had to suspend reality for a little while. It appears that there are a number of people that uh, seem to be otherwise rational, productive, sane people that never grew out of this. On today's episode, we're going to swap some parts, then we'll discover why mom's a fun guy, and finally we'll take a close look at your anus. So go get your toolkit, hide the keys to the car, and focus your telescope, because before I travel to the center of the earth to do battle with the lava people, here we go. There are theories about alternative universes, about parallel universes, about opposite but equal universes. I've covered some of this in some of the past episodes. I've generally mocked or debunked these ideas, as I'm sure many or most of you have as well. Look, God can do whatever he wants, but from a biblical worldview, it sets up a large number of theological issues. That said, I have a question. Is it sinful... Is it wrong of me to hope that either I'm currently in a backward universe, I mean, somehow slipped through a wormhole in my closet or something, or that there is one out there that that maybe I can slip into? Maybe if I get my car going fast enough or something. I only ask because I'm not sure I'm in the right place. I feel like maybe the interstellar stork got the wrong address. Kind of like in Looney Tunes, but like Looney Tunes Star Trek edition. Found on mirror.co.uk, headline, Doctor Planning Risky Womb Transplant to Allow Transgender Woman to Carry a Baby. So, uh, who wants to join me in a give-send-go fundraiser to create, or maybe work with SpaceX to create some, uh, wormhole to sanity space arc or something like that. I just really feel like I I just need to just go anywhere else at this point. Uh, But since I'm here and, and you're here and we're in this together, let's lock arms and take a look at the article. Dr. Narendra Kushik, which I'm sure I said completely wrong, a surgeon in New Delhi, India, said, quote, Every transgender woman wants to be as female as possible, and that includes being a mother. The way towards this is with a uterine transplant, the same as a kidney or any other transplant. This is the future. We cannot predict exactly when this will happen, but it will happen very soon. We have our plans, and we are very, very optimistic about this. Now, the process would be to use an unused uterus that used to be used by the now-deceased uterus-using donor, 
or a uterus that's not being used, maybe never been used, so more of a neuterus than a usterus from a man that used to be a woman who could or could not use her uterus, but as a man has no use for the uterus as usual. Now, I'll be honest, I can't keep that up, so we're going to stop doing that right now. A donor uterus would be obtained from either a dead woman or a woman that's decided to be a man and has decided to recycle the unneeded parts. Once transplanted, you know, poof, because it's basically identical to swapping out a kidney, all you need to do is throw an embryo up in there and bada-bing, exactly the same as a woman. Now, before you throw shade on India as being the place you'd need to go to get this done, just know that they're quickly surpassing Thailand as the place all the cool guys and gals are going to to be able to be gals and guys. In fact, Doc K, as I'm not going to try his last name for a second time, said, quote, Many of our patients tell us that their sexual partners don't even notice that they weren't born with female sex organs. And that's our aim, to make it so they live as normal a life as possible as a woman. We aim for an aesthetic ideal. Now, the reality is, the uterus would be nothing more than a standalone organ. It would need a blood supply to keep it viable, and after that, it can't be connected to fallopian tubes. There's no cervix, no vagina, no birth canal, no ovaries, no eggs, no way to become pregnant naturally. Also, no necessary hormone system, but you know, other than that, all woman, baby. How could you tell the difference? Am I right? Various doctors are quoted in the article, most of which are acting like this is absolutely theoretically possible. Dr. Paulson, president of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, said in 2017, quote, There would be additional challenges, but I don't see any obvious problem that would preclude it. I think it would be possible. Christopher Inglefield, a surgeon and founder of the London Transgender Clinic, said the procedure is basically the same as transplanting a uterus in a woman. And side note, that's still considered to be a highly experimental procedure. He also said, quote, This pioneering birth is extremely important for any trans female who would like to carry her own child. Because once the medical community accepts this as a treatment for cis women with uterine infertility, such as the congenital absence of a womb, then it would be illegal to deny a trans female who has completed her transition. There are clearly anatomical boundaries when it comes to trans women, but these are problems that I believe can be surmounted, and the transplant into a trans female is essentially identical to that of a cis female. Professor Simon Fischel, Britain's leading fertility expert, said, quote, Womb transplants have already been carried out in Denmark, though from one woman to another woman, never to a man. Now, just suppose you can find a spot for the donated womb in a man and create a blood supply in the correct endocrine environment, then theoretically it is possible. Yes, it's strange, but strange things happen. Now, lest you think this is a biased article, Professor Robert Winston, apparently one of the most famous medical experts in Britain, and the article is very quick to point out that he's only famous because he's been the presenter on several medical BBC TV shows. He said, quote, The problems are huge. It would be a hugely difficult operation. The risk of death to the patient would be very high, both from the operation to allow the transplantation and also from the pregnancy. It would simply not be ethically acceptable. Now, Professor Fischel also addressed the ethics issue by saying, quote, 
Ethics is a complex issue because, in the end, you're talking about whose ethics. Ethics is quite subjective. It might be religious, etc. But people talk about rights, don't they? I was a man. I'm now a woman. If it's medically safe, I have the right to try to have a baby. The question then comes down to the professionalism of the doctor. And you do get maverick doctors, but it would be grossly irresponsible to just shoot this off first in humans without testing it on animals. And that research has not yet, to my knowledge, been done. It's bordering on madness to even try. Okay, that's got all the important points out there for us to just stare in awe and wonder and amazement. You can read the complete article by following the link in the notes. So we want to be logical here, right? Let's look at this logically, shall we? First, I absolutely agree with animal testing for human products. I don't think there's an issue with doing that, although we need to be as humane as possible. I do, however, have a problem with animal testing for something that is unnecessary, that is not borderline mad, but full-blown delusional. Animals should not be used to play with any demented, twisted, perverted ideas we have. That's misusing the earth, the creation that God has given us, and given us charge to subdue, have dominion over, and to keep. Second, this is madness. This is literally psychosis. This is the logical extension of a society that refuses to address mental health, but rather redefines truth in a postmodern way, whatever your truth is. That is what truth is. Third, ethics. Something like this is not ethical. Professor Fischel was right when he asked, who's ethics? See, ethics, just another word for morals when you boil it down. So, yes, who's morals? The patient? The doctor's morals? Some medical board? Some elected body of governing officials? If we're going to claim ethics or morals, we need to have a moral giver, someone that gives us the bedrock foundation for the morals. The world, detached from biblical principles, is detached from the creator of morals. For them, that question is valid. Who gets to decide? For the Christian, we have morals and ethics that are immovable. Or at least they are in the Bible, although not all alleged Christians agree. But when we look in the Bible, it's very clear. Sexual deviancy and perversion are sins that need to be repented of. This is just a natural progression of deviancy left unchecked. In fact, encouraged. And let's not lose track of the fact that this still doesn't make a man a woman. This only makes a man who is severely mentally sick even more sick by further playing into the sickness. Biologically, the only way to change a man to a woman or vice versa would be to swap out chromosomes. But even in doing that, it doesn't change the parts. And if you change the parts, it doesn't make the parts work. In an evolutionary worldview, if you change chromosomes, parts, got the parts to work, modified the hormones, sure, you're now a woman. From an archaeological worldview, if your bones are dug up somewhere down the road, they'll identify you as the gender you were born, not the gender you tried to disguise yourself as. From a biblical worldview, it's not possible to change your gender. You were created the gender you were supposed to be. How can you be sure of this? Because here you are. Although sin can and does create all sorts of psychological deficiencies, including the belief that you're attracted to the same sex or that you're a different gender or even a different creature than you were born, that doesn't make you what your mind is trying to tell you that you are. The problem is in the mind, not the body. 
Even Doc K, in one of the first quotes I mentioned, said, We aim for an aesthetic ideal. Translation? You won't be who you think you are, but we can butcher your body to make you appear like it. God created us male and female. There's no ambiguity there. Anything outside male and female marital sexual relations is a perversion of God's edicts, and it is therefore sinful. But when you shove the true truth of the Bible aside and opt for the fickle, emotional-based, sinful, unstable views of man as your source of truth, this is what you get. Now, my personal feeling is that there is a scientific medical limit as to what we can do. I, I don't think a viable child will ever be formed and birthed from a uterus transplanted into a man, if that transplant ever works in a realistic way in the first place. But I have no idea what the future may hold. That said, no matter what man does, no matter what Tower of Babel we try to construct, no matter what kind of Frankenstein's monster we attempt to assemble, God is in sovereign control. Just like God told Job that he is in control of setting the boundaries for the sea, thus far shall you come and no farther, he also has boundaries for humanity. Unfortunately, we don't know where those boundaries are. We may not be anywhere close to those boundaries yet. So as we watch the sanity of the world crash and burn around us, we hold to the truth. Do not let the world push you, pressure you into denying what you know to be true. Speak the truth in love. We don't need to be nasty or mean, but it's okay to speak up for what you know to be true. The lostness of this world seems to be increasing exponentially, which means our mandate to go and tell, to make disciples, is even more critical and urgent. The lost world is scrambling for answers, for wisdom. We have what they're looking for. We just need to be ready when, or if, God chooses to open the eyes and ears of someone around us. For a decade or more in the 70s and 80s, back before Netflix, before Disney+, Plus, before DVD players, before live streaming, when we couldn't skip commercials in our TV shows, we were all subjected to a poor woman who was bombarded with traffic and the dog and screaming kids, and she would finally call out, Calgon, take me away. And the next thing you know, we're watching a woman taking a bubble bath. Well, mothers these days are apparently heading a slightly different direction to be taken away. Mushrooms. No, not the type some of you sick individuals put on pizza. The magic kind. Not the article that we're going to review, but a solid lead-in article from September 2021 found on psychedelicspotlight.com headline, Moms on Mushrooms, Inside the Psychedelic Parenting Trend. Apparently, moms are finding the practice of microdosing on psilocybin, a hallucinogenic made from a variety of shrooms, man, to be exactly what the doctor, you know, Dr. Feelgood, ordered to be more positive and energetic and a better mom. Christina Rivera Cogswell, a writer and contributor to the Huffington Post, said that microdosing helped her, quote, look deeply into the eyes of her own extinction. That sounds terrifying. She went on and said that she was distraught. She felt a, a gut-punching guilt for the world of absolute doom and destruction she's leaving her children. She sounds fun at parties. So microdosing helped her be more positive. Oh. The article says, quote, Parents who microdose assert that small amounts of psychedelics, not enough to trip, but enough to theoretically alter the mind, 
help them deal with the depression and anxiety that come with raising a family. Microdosing may also help mothers connect deeper with their children and approach parenting from a more sympathetic lens. <laughs> okay, so not tripping, but altering the mind, which, I mean, isn't that the definition of tripping? Do we need to have the walls bleed to consider it tripping? I mean, I'm going to leave this article here. The link is in the notes. If, if you'd like to read it all, it's, it's, uh, it's great, let me tell you. This leads into our main article from SciPost.org, headline, Psychedelic Experiences and Mindfulness Linked to Better Psychological Well-Being. Now, the first sentence gives really the overall gist of the article. Quote, a new study has found a positive association between mindfulness practice, psychedelic use, and overall psychological well-being. So a man will call Tim because... I have no idea how to pronounce his first or last name, and it appears that Tim is what he goes by for people like me. He undertook a study to see if there were real benefits for ordinary, healthy people in using psychedelics, you know, just on their own, not prescribed. And then he wanted to compare them to the practice of mindfulness, in which he saw many parallels. He wanted to focus on just regular people, because there are already a lot of studies being done with psychedelics in clinical medical settings. Now, I'm not going to go deep into the studies. That's not my purpose here. But the basic setup was a survey of 1,219 people looking at their meditation and psychedelic practices. They completed the five-facet mindfulness questionnaire and the mystical experience questionnaire. And they completed self-reported moods over the previous week in the areas of or traits of life satisfaction, meaning in life, wisdom, depression, anxiety, and stress. The general findings were, quote, participants who practiced meditation tended to score higher on the measure of trait mindfulness and mystical experiences. And those who reported using psychedelic drugs tended to have more intense mystical experiences and greater trait mindfulness. It, it sounds like that's the same. Anyway, Tim concluded that according to his findings, which he admits this is not a clinical type of study, but he found that mindfulness and psychedelics can enhance the lives of perfectly healthy people, not just those who are struggling. I don't think it's any mystery that we have become an anxiety-prone, stress-riddled, uber-depressed society. Back in the 60s and 70s, you had the hippie crowd, but they were really just going for what they considered to be a good time. I'm sure some wanted to escape, but escape then, I just don't think it meant the same as it does today. At least, if nothing else, not at the same scope as it does today. Focusing on the drug side of things, we've basically got the accepted, the somewhat accepted, and the illegal types of drugs. Caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, all those are the essentially universally accepted type of drugs. Marijuana and opioids, to a certain degree, are somewhat accepted. And then you've got the rest, cocaine, crack, meth, etc. It appears that the psychedelics are being shifted from the illegal to the somewhat accepted category. We're told that the war on drugs has failed. We've been fighting it for years decades with lots of money, a lot of effort, and it's just not going to work. So the best thing to do is just to legalize everything and, and let it be sold by legitimate businesses. Oh, and while we're at it, we can go ahead and tax it too, you know, so the government gets their cut. 
The problem is that the war on drugs is not being fought. I mean, sure, there's law enforcement trying to do something with it, but when's the last time you saw one of those PSA commercials like we used to have? You know, commercials like, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, or remember the just say no campaigns? What about the dare to keep kids off of drugs? You know, the, the, the cool police cars with dare scrawled across the side. In addition, we don't have a secure border. We're understaffed at the border. And the rules at the border are set such that nothing is really going to be stopped there. I mean, you get a couple things caught here or there, but really drugs are flowing like water through there. We don't need to give up on battling drugs. And I don't care what people tell you. These illegal drugs that we're legalizing and normalizing are nothing but gateways. In a grand jury session, someone asked a convict a question unrelated to the case, is weed a gateway drug? He laughed and said it absolutely was. He then proceeded to give the best explanation I've ever heard on how it's used to hook people into harder and harder drugs. This was a guy who knew what he was talking about. A YouTuber who is not a Christian, who recently escaped California, where he's lived his whole life, I believe, he said that when marijuana was legalized in California, there was a change in people. He said it was hard to describe, but there was a definite, noticeable change in attitude and demeanor, and it wasn't for the better. These mushrooms, I mean, sure, they may have a short-term, mind-altering, mood-altering effect, but it's nothing real. It's nothing permanent. It does nothing to fix the issue that's driving people to use them. Just know this as a, as a little side note. A sign of a society in the final death throes is one that starts to legalize all sorts of depravity in order to drug and distract its people. You know, so they don't see the collapse coming before it's too late. I'm not saying that the United States is at that point. But I'm saying that the United States is probably at that point. So what about meditation and mindfulness? That's good, right? That helps focus your mind and relieve stress. It brings calm. It's being promoted in schools and businesses and by psychiatrists and counselors. And even the Christian community has gotten in on this racket promoting things like Christian mindfulness. Here's the problem. Mindfulness is nothing but Eastern mysticism, which is nothing but New Age meditation, which is nothing but demonic practices. This goes for meditation that's attached to yoga, not the stretches, the meditation, and the meditation that Christians promote. It's no better. The reality is the practice of mindfulness or meditation is there to clear your mind, to remove the distractions, to shut off the noise, let your mind go blank. There's a reason why the next step is usually to find your spirit guide. Once you clear out your mind, once you've let your guard down, well, nature abhors a vacuum. Something is going to come in and fill the emptiness. And that's something, uh, that's not going to be God. I can guarantee that. Now, most Christians, at least I think, know not to mess with the Eastern style meditation. You know, sitting in the lotus position and alming away. But then you get groups like Focus on the Family, who come out with an article entitled Mindfulness, a Christian Approach. They say, quote, like anything, mindfulness can be misused. However, it doesn't automatically contradict the Christian faith. We just need to make sure we approach it in a wise, biblical way. Now, in general, I have no problem with Focus on the Family, but they're flat out wrong on this one. Not one thing they said in that sentence resembles anything close to the truth. 
Mindfulness cannot be misused. Well, even trying to manipulate it as a Christian thing, I maintain, won't work because that's not what it's designed for. They say it doesn't automatically contradict the Christian faith, to which I'd say it absolutely does. And they say that we need to approach it in a wise biblical way, to which I'd say there isn't a wise biblical way to do this. The author then goes into what I would consider to be a pitiful attempt to shoehorn the Bible into the practices of mindfulness. He says that Philippians 2, 1 through 5, tells us to be mindful and aware of the present. It says nothing of the sort. It uses the word mind. I, I think that's his connection. It's telling us to be and act like Christians, to be of the same mind as Christ. He says prayer is the same as mindfulness. By definition, that's literally not possible, as mindfulness is meant to clear the mind. If you're praying, you should be engaging in thought in order to construct and deliver your prayer. He says that meditation is in the Bible. You know, studying the Word of God. I'll come back to this one in a second, but meditation in the Bible is the opposite of meditation in mindfulness. He says that Scripture tells us to take every thought captive, which it does, I agree. Mindfulness says to get rid of every thought. Do those sound the same? Or do they kind of sound like the opposite? So no, Focus on the Family and many other websites are leading Christians down a very dark path. Uh, just look up Christian mindfulness. You'll find tons of very helpful sites. And yet even there, we're still not addressing the root of the psychedelics or mindfulness problems. I've already mentioned the problem is the perception or reality of stress, anxiety, worry, depression, etc. with no action plan, no answers as to why or what to do about it. Now the why could be many things, but the reality is that the Bible tells us how we are to use our mind, and this by its very nature will work to alleviate most causes of the issues I just mentioned. Philippians 4, 4 through 9, gives us the overall answer to what we should be doing, rather than screwing around trying to wedge the Bible into what amounts to a satanic practice. Remember, if it's not of God, it's of the devil. So this passage states, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So what do we learn from this? What should we do? Rejoice in the Lord always. Now this goes along hand in hand with Give thanks to the Lord in all things and pray without ceasing. You cannot be focused on God like any of these if you're focusing on clearing your mind, on eliminating the noise by focusing on your breathing. Stress, anxiety, it says be anxious for nothing. The Lord is at hand. He's there. He's approachable. We can go directly to him. The cure for anxiety 
pray and petition God with both thanksgiving and requests. Bring it all to God. When you do that, we're told that the peace of God that we'll never fully comprehend will what? Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then, does the Bible say to clear out your mind? Did Paul say to eliminate the noise? No. Focus on whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Think about these things. Thinking, by definition, is the opposite of mindfulness. Additionally, Paul told Timothy that we're not given a spirit of fear. How many are in a perpetual state of fear, especially right now? But we're given a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control, or in some translations, a sound mind. We're not to give in to fear and worry and panic like the world does. We have power. We have a sound mind. We have love. Finally, meditate in the Bible versus meditate in Eastern mysticism. Meditation in relation to mindfulness can be generally thought of the same as a Buddhist method. You want quiet because you'll generate your own internal tranquility. You want to have the correct posture. You want to do it at the right time for the right amount of time. You start by focusing on your breath. Then you can focus on how all beings are interconnected. This helps generate love for others. And it goes on from there. Meditation, when mentioned in the Bible, is almost always meaning a focused study on the scriptures. This is a period of high brain function, the opposite of the Buddhist method of focusing on yourself and your breath. Some that try to tell us how to meditate, you know, the Christian way, will tell you to focus on a favorite verse. But again, the Bible never says this. That's just taking a pagan practice and dressing it up. Dangerous. Very dangerous. And not at all biblical. Bottom line, the world is hurting. Whether real or perceived, the minds, hearts, and souls of so many people are troubled, are distressed, or on the edge. The world tries to give people legal drugs and psychobabble to mask the symptoms, with very little done to address the root cause. And seeing the failure of the conventional methods, they're now turning to less than legal drugs and less than conventional psychobabble. They're now pushing the demonic, and of course most of them wouldn't know or wouldn't believe that that's what they're doing. The only people that can offer real solutions are Christians. We have the answers the world wants to ignore, and we have people professing to be Christians that are adopting the world's methods. I mean, what's going on here? So my fellow Christians, you may not be a certified counselor, but if you're born again, you are a counselor. You should be able to point people generally, specifically, even if it has to be done googly, to the true answer to the problems they're trying to cover up through worldly, demonic, dangerous methods. We can help this world, but we need to be prepared. So I'll finish with this from the pen of the Apostle Peter. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Okay, I'm looking for an argument. I want to see if anyone wants to jump in on this. I maintain that the quality of uh, pretty much everything is going down, down, down. I mean, the technology is increasing like crazy, but the quality is dropping like a rock. Any takers on this argument? Anyone?
Any hands? Bueller? Yeah, didn't think so. I mean, look at cars. How many recalls of mostly American-made cars have you seen over the last few years along the lines of uh, doors open unexpectedly? You'd think after 125 years, give or take, we'd have, I don't know, solved that whole stay closed thing. TVs. How many still have, or or could have if they wanted to, it just threw them out, could have had one of those huge console buffet furniture style 10,000 pound TVs, mostly the big glass tube, right? And they still look about as good as they did the day they were purchased. Now, you can't beat the picture quality we get today, but the TVs of today last, what, 10 years, if you're lucky? I think the last great Windows operating system was probably Windows XP. That was a solid system, 20 years ago. The features and speed of the latest systems, it's far superior, but the glitches, the bugs, the constant security patches and updates, kind of ridiculous. And even the institutions that we could always count on, those are apparently lowering their standards also. Their quality is dying off too. Take a look at Popular Mechanics. You know, the magazine website started in 1902. It's been a trusted source of solid information for over a century. And then you get this. Headline. Why do all of the planets orbit in the same direction? With the byline of, quote, put simply, they started out that way and kept going. From a factual standpoint, I guess I won't disagree with the words they used. Yes, in our solar system, the planets all orbit in the same direction. Yes, they did start that way, and yes, they have kept going. The problem is, the author didn't stop there. She decided to educate us on planetary orbits and rotation, and the origin of it all, and so you see where this is going, she heads right into Genesis 1 and, and states that in the beginning... No, okay, you got me. No, no, she didn't do that, silly goose. She started back about 4.6 billion years ago, you know, just a mere 9.1 billion years after the Big Bang, where all the matter in the universe was compressed into nothing that spun faster and faster, I'm talking about the nothing here, and got hotter and hotter, still, still nothing, then nothing exploded and slung off everything, right? So 9.1 billion years after that, we get to 4.6 billion years ago, where she says that our universe was just a mass of dust and gas, which, as we all know, is what happens when a star dies and explodes, and as we all further know, that's the, quote, nursery for new stars and their attendant planets. I don't mean to talk down to you. So I'm going to read the author's summary of how our solar system got here. You know, for those few that didn't know this like the back of their hand already, the, for the rest of us, right? For the rest of us that already know this stuff, I mean, we can catch up on some reading or, I don't know, watch our favorite show, whatever. It won't take too long. She says, quote, our modern explanation of the solar system's creation goes like this. A shockwave from a nearby star going supernova initiated the collapse of our solar nebula. When the nearby giant star exploded, high-energy particles blasted the nebula, causing pockets of matter and gas to collapse. Oh man, I've been there, right? Am I right? Anyway, she continues. Uh, from there, a gravitationally-powered central point 
formed around which the rest of the condensing cloud whirled. The pressure of the core forced hydrogen atoms to combine and form helium, releasing a tremendous amount of heat and light, gobbling up more than 99% of the available matter in the cloud. To make a very long story short, the center of the collapsing nebula became our sun, and the rest of the matter clumped together to form our familiar planets, moons, and other rocky bodies, such as asteroids. So that's right, folks. We're living on a clumped-together nebula gas and, and matter. Home sweet home. Now, apparently, because the cloud had an initial rotation, you know, because of reasons, the gas and the matter, as it was starting to clump, started spinning faster and faster because, uh, because of its own gravity. The speed went faster and faster still, and all that matter spinning right round, baby, right round, like a record baby, right round, 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 flattened into a disc. And there you have it. Science. No, nah, just kidding. There's more. She speaks of the conservation of angular momentum, which is a real thing. The conservation of angular momentum basically says that a body spinning in a direction will continue to spin in that same direction unless acted on by a force. Likewise, anything flung off of that spinning object will also spin in the same direction. So if you think of pizza dough, if a good Italian spun that dough faster and faster and faster, eventually pieces of dough will fly off. If we were to look down at the dough and see that the pizza pie man was spinning the dough clockwise, every piece that flies off will fly off in a clockwise direction, and the pieces will start to spin also, and they will spin clockwise. It conserves the direction of rotation. Now, we have a few problems beginning by just looking at the planets alone. Although they are all orbiting around the sun in the same direction, Venus is spinning about its own axis in the opposite direction as all the other planets. And, and don't even mention Uranus. Nobody wants to talk about Uranus. <sighs> okay, fine. Just remember, you're the one that put Uranus on the table. Uranus is on its side. So if we were to look across the planets, all the planets are rotating left to right, except that one little rebellious one. But then Uranus is rotating bottom to top. So what happened to these little fellas? Well, let's see. The author has a scientific explanation for us. Now, this is pretty technical, so I want you to hang on to Uranus. Quote, Venus and Uranus experienced more turbulence at some point. Huh? What? Not satisfied? Eh, fine. She continues, quote, Astronomers think the movements of Jupiter and Saturn, which also moved farther out from the Sun, affected these two smaller planets and altered their movements. Ah, well, if, if astronomers think Jupiter and Saturn kind of skittered by the two somewhat smaller planets that apparently stopped the rotation and spun it the other way of, of the one planet and knock the other one on its side. I mean, I mean, you know, whoops, excuse me, pardon me. Oh, oh, sorry about that. And then poor Venus is doing all it can not to self-destruct and Uranus is not happy. That's for darn sure. Well, she goes on to say that our planets and their moons, and we'll come back to the moon shortly, orbit the sun in the same direction. But we have some comets and asteroids traveling around the sun in the opposite direction, the explanation she gives, and, and this will be important in a moment, is, quote, because their relatively small mass 
makes it easier for large space objects to pull them away from their original directions. Now look, I agree, as a comet zooms around the universe, the gravitational pull of planets most likely does cause a path to vary slightly. She then cites a gas giant and no, nope, I know what you're thinking and no, we're not doing that. A cleverly named Kepler 2b, or probably more commonly known by its nickname, you know it, say it with me here, exoplanet HAT-P-7b, a planet that is orbiting a different star about 1,040 light years away from us, which is orbiting its star um, backwards, I guess. Now, the explanation is solid. Okay, it, quote, was possibly perturbed, I mean, join the club, into a tilted and elongated orbit by a large gravitational force, possibly due to another planet. All right, now look, you and I have known each other for a good while now. You know my feelings on maybe and possibly, and pretty much all of the words this author has used to describe what absolutely scientifically probably might have been, maybe if our assumptions are correct, could have been potentially happening our words just like those. So looking at this gas giant, it measures about 16 times larger than the Earth. To give you some sense of scale, Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system, is about 11.2 times larger than the Earth. So here's the deal. A planet, let's just say the Earth, is about 800 times the diameter of, say, Halley's Comet. Now, I'll agree, if a comet gets close enough to a planet, the gravitational force could tug on that comet and move it slightly. But from there, we jump to a planet about 1.4 times the size of Jupiter, and she casually says that it was probably a strong gravitational force. <laughs> yeah, it would have to be, right? I mean... If we use the idea of Halley's Comet to the Earth to move the comet, you know, that relationship, and that would have to be a pretty close pass to really make a difference, but we, we go on. Doing the math to calculate the gas giant's diameter, etc., etc., it would take something about 120 times the diameter of our sun passing closely, very closely, to affect its orbit. And, and I mean, let's be honest here, without even knowing where to start real calculations on this, I bet that number's really low. Now, there are massively large stars out there, thousands of times the size of our sun. But the star this Kepler-2b orbits is about 400 times the diameter of our sun, so whatever passed by and, you know, perturbed the gassy giant, which is always a bad idea, it had to have been massive. Basically, I'm saying that the plausibility of this being true it seems to be dwindling. Now, out of curiosity, I wanted to see what it would take for Earth to be knocked out of its orbit. Because, you know, to change a direction of an orbit, that's almost what you'd have to do, except that the orbit would then have to be recaptured. So, I don't know, it's more precise than, than just a, a hit, an impact. But this at least gives you an idea of the grip that our sun has on our planet. So this was posted on Quora, and the answer was given by a purported aerospace engineer. I don't know, he had a lot of numbers, he impressed me. Assuming an impact strong enough to knock the Earth out of orbit while also losing the moon, so that gravitational force is overcome, you would need 105.4 quadrillion megatons of force. 
Now, as of 2016, this was calculated as 16.2 trillion times the force of all the nuclear weapons on Earth. But apparently Saturn and Jupiter, you know, scooching on by Venus, they could slow it down, stop it, and cause it to turn the other direction. Now, I know we're talking apples and oranges with changing the rotation, you know, versus knocking out of orbit, but the concept holds. Massive amounts of gravitational or impact energy would be required to change anything that we see in the universe. Now, I want to talk moons really quick. We have one moon. It moons us every night. Other planets have more than one moon. I'm doing my best to break it down like my vice president. Again, the conservation of angular momentum holds true here as well. If everything was spinning, then everything should be spinning in the same direction. That includes moons orbiting a planet, but that's not what we see. Jupiter has a bunch of moons. As of right now, the count is at like 79 or 80 from what I found. And I couldn't find a good number, but let's just say that from the diagrams, most of these are orbiting Jupiter in the wrong direction. Of course, now, the explanation for this is that they're, you know, all relatively small and probably just got captured as they were passing through. I don't know. I guess they were moon-napped. Have we looked on any milk cartons? Neptune has nearly all its moons orbiting in the right direction, except for one that has a very large orbit. It's going backwards. Saturn is another planet with a massive number of moons, and just like Jupiter, nearly all of them orbit backwards. And, and it has a couple moons that orbit the right way, but on a completely different plane. It's, it's a tilted orbit as compared to the rest. Broadening our scope one more level, our solar system is one of, let's say, many in our galaxy, the Milky Way. And our galaxy is only one of, at least the latest estimate, about two trillion galaxies. If you've ever seen a picture of our galaxy, you see it's kind of a center mass of stuff with arms kind of curving away from the center. That's because the entire galaxy is rotating. But when we look at the galaxies from what is known now, it appears that about half of them rotate one way and half rotate the other way. This is absolutely impossible when using the theory of the Big Bang, which is a single source of all matter and rotation. And the conservation of angular momentum holds true yet again, or, or at least it should. All galaxies should turn the same direction. Remember, in space, the only thing to encounter is other matter. But in an explosion like is described or theorized in the Big Bang, everything spun and exploded from one central point, a dot, in a void that's empty of everything, which is what space would have been, in a vacuum where not even air resistance is encountered. When everything explodes and moves away from everything else, Nothing would hit anything else, and nothing would get any closer to anything else. In other words, although scientists now say that, yeah, we would expect that, you know, half of the galaxies would rotate one way and half would rotate the other way, you know, because of symmetry. <laughs> no. The reality is, per the Big Bang, it's impossible that even one galaxy spins the opposite direction, let alone hundreds upon hundreds of billions of them. 
And this is what we see in evolutionary science all the time. We see that the scientists compartmentalize each individual thing. You know, the Big Bang happened because we see this, but only look at these specific boundaries. And galaxies spin backwards because of that, but don't talk about the Big Bang. Planets orbit the same direction, you know, except when they don't. And moons orbit backwards because they were captured, but comets, much smaller, aren't captured. Rather, they're spun into a backwards orbit. And on it goes, as long as we don't look past the very specific subject at hand, for instance, why do all of the planets orbit in the same direction? Put simply, they started out that way and kept going. Then things can make scientific sense, at least to a large degree. And that's what anti-biblical, anti-God science strives to do. Just make the pieces look right. Don't worry that the complete puzzle is an absolute unworkable disaster. This is what happens when you try to cover a lie with a lie with a lie. Now, I'm not saying that evolutionary scientists and astronomers and popular mechanics or even this author is knowingly lying. I'm sure there are some, but I feel safe to say that most of them are very genuine, legitimately believe evolution and billions of years is correct. And they're just trying to figure out how to make sense of a planet and a solar system and a universe that almost fits the mathematical and physics models, but not quite. This is why they have to abandon all properties of physics, math, and thermodynamics for the Big Bang to happen. This is why they have to come up with some reason why angular momentum is not conserved. This is why they have to come up with implausible theories of gravitational pull by a larger body when no actual evidence exists. And that's why they need billions of years, because if you speed this up too fast, it just looks silly. Now, unfortunately, they have to utilize self-imposed ignorance. Science, by definition, creates a hypothesis, then works to disprove that hypothesis. It's funny, when you get into the STEM fields, in many careers, you are literally trying to work yourself out of a job. Scientists, if doing actual science, try to prove how wrong they are all the time. Now, in order to do this, they're supposed to look at all possibilities. In root cause analysis, we oftentimes run an abbreviated model to figure out the chain of events that happened because we know certain things didn't. But if we did a full written model, say a machine breaks, if we explored every possibility, we'd have to look at things like sabotage, aliens, and the like. Since we know certain things aren't true, we normally just skip them. But I have been in a few large analyses where everything was on the table. Science, especially evolutionary science, has decided against doing that. They've decided that the implausible scenario is biblical creation. You know, that's the aliens of my root cause world. It's just not a viable option. Problem is, it very much is an option that needs to be taken into consideration. See, where the Big Bang falls short, creation makes sense. Where we must ignore basic laws, creation shows who made the laws. Where we can't explain why half the galaxies spin backwards, we know that God made the stars also. Where we have to come up with hard-to-swallow theories for planets spinning backwards and moons orbiting backwards, as one of my favorite creationists says, God might have done it that way to make the evolutionists look stupid. Colossians 1, 16-17 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
You want to know why the universe, which is very clearly spreading out, has held together for billions of years? It's because it's only been about 6,000 years, and it's because God holds everything together through his will, utilizing the laws he created. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, although written as poetry, this talks about God setting the planet spinning so the sun can go away and come back and run from one end to the other. It talks about the power of the sun, the heat. It talks about the fact we can learn from the night and the day. And did you know, and I doubt that David knew this at the time he wrote it, that the universe has its own sound? Astronomers have likened it to singing. It's, it's kind of an eerie sound, kind of a whale kind of sound, if I were to try to classify it. But the universe sings out day in and day out. Can you imagine the wonders that would be revealed if the science would simply allow the possibility, test the hypothesis, that the Bible might be correct? Rather than wasting all this time trying to look back in time and speculate as to how something happened, we could look around at the wonder of what God made and think about why it was made. Nearly all fields of science were in fact created by Christians in order to plumb the depths of the creation of God. But as Satan does, he steals the good, twists it just a bit, and turns it evil. So, as Christians, we should be looking at the evidence from not only what we're told to think by the world, and in many things, by the mercy of God, they've gotten them right, but also through the lens of a Bible that is inerrant, so that we can truly have open eyes to see the glory of God's creation. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.